you got one, Adam? Or yeah, I mean, I don't want to labour too much on this because we already kind of talked about it before. But you'd mentioned about like the comparison of property to other asset classes and how much time it takes, and the the attraction to property is passive income, um, and. I was wondering whether you actually track the time that you spend managing properties and whether there is a, uh, and, and if you do, or if you have at least an anecdotal answer to it, whether there's a split between, oh, what the split is like between setup and then ongoing management for you. Um, yeah. The attraction to property is not passive income. I'm going to correct you there. If you really want true passive income, you really want to be investing in in an asset class where you're just basically buying something and then assuming that's going to go up or it's paying you money. So for example, the stock market is very passive. You buy the stock market and then you sell it at a future date. I mean, there's literally nothing to do. People like to spend a whole load of time and effort picking stuff and when to buy in and when to sell out. But most of the time, because of human psychology, that actually works against you. It's almost like the more time you spend in the stock market, the worse you do. So the stock market, very good for passive income. Putting it in a savings account, very good for passive income, right? Buying property is not a very low time intensive way. There are ways you can do it that can reduce the amount of time you spend, yes, but it is not like a super passive income vehicle. Why property is good is because there's certain aspects to it that allow you to make good returns more reliably than other areas for the kinds of returns you can make. And there are many different ways you can invest in property. So it's quite broad. It's quite diverse in terms of what you can do. Okay. So because of the nature of in the UK, consistently year in, year out, less properties are made, are built than properties are needed increasingly each year. Okay. If you buy in areas that are geographically restricted and they continue to increase in demand, like London and other big cities, they will there will just be more and more pressure to want to live in those areas and buy those properties and the value will go up. Inflation tends to improve, increase the price of properties because you can get very high mortgages on properties. So on a buy-to-let standard 75%, you're quadrupling how much money you, uh, you can have it work for you. So a, a 2% inflation rate if you've only put 25% in, very crudely, it can give you an 8% return. So the difference can be pure return for you, right? Factoring in everything else. Okay. So there's a number of things that allow property to be great. Okay. So by doing that, you can increase your return. You can do things to improve your return within property. And you can also do it in a way where it reliably brings you return. So this whole thing of rental income coming in, like each month you get your rent, you pay your costs, but overall you've got some net money. It's very reliable, right? Once you've got in a situation like that and you've got a number of properties bringing you rent, and once you've calculated it all, it's covering your cost of living, that's a very strong place to be. And even if one or two properties run into an issue, you've got others to diversify for yourself. 
So that's a, that's a nice place to be for people that are pursuing financial freedom. The stock market, way less effort, for example, okay, actually can bring in, bring in a very strong return. But two issues with it. One is it can be very volatile in terms of its return. Okay. And because it's not giving you much income, some of the assets will give you dividends. But overall, that's much less relative to, say, property. That volatility prevents you from take, makes it difficult for you to take money out each month, say, for your cost of living. So your, what they call is your like, like the amount of money you take out each month, say your stock market portfolio or your uh, investment portfolio will have to be fairly low to protect against that volatility. So does that, does that help answer your question, Adam? Yeah. It absolutely does. Exactly. And that's, that's the trade-off that I'm trying to make right now is I've just started to invest in, in um, a few funds. They're producing a, a good return. But like you said there, you can't rely, once you make some money off these funds, you can't take that out because you, you, in the next month, we might see a, a 5% drop. So the volatility means that you have to keep your money in and therefore can't, uh, can't you know, use it as an, as an income stream in su- such a reliable way as, as property. So yeah, that's super helpful. Yeah, so what, one example, right, is the stock market. Some people invest fully in the stock market, okay? And I, take, I take that as a comparator because it's the most obvious one. Depending on who you speak to or what kind of time period you look at, Generally speaking, people kind of say the stock market brings in a kind of 11% return, 9% return, right? Something around that kind of level. In, time, in some time periods, a few decades, it's had a 13% annual return. Very high, okay? But then when you talk to people about what's the best uh, extraction rate of money you can take out to protect the... the, the capital the amount of money in there so effectively what's the what's the right amount of money to take out each year so that the the amount of money in that pot isn't going to slowly diminish over time it's going to stay the same or keep going up people tend to say three or four percent much lower than the overall return on that asset class and that is for the main reason of that volatility some things you can do to protect against that is the reason why people do that is because they want to be in a situation when, when they start doing that, they never need to start working again. But in practice, people are in very different situations and people be happy working again or changing how much money they take and so on. If you're more flexible in what you want to do in the future and how you want to spend your money, you can be more risky, I guess, in terms of how you draw funds from what you built up. So if you have a part-time income, for example, and something you're very passionate about, then that means that you don't need as much money. Or if you're willing to do that in the future, if things change, then that reduces what you need. And it goes back to why do we want to do what we're doing? Okay. We have an image of what we want from our lives. Okay. And if we don't really dive into that and really think about it, what we tend to get stuck on is, oh, how do we just make more money? Or how do we get as much more passive income? 
And that's not really what we want. We want a certain life being able to do certain things and that costs a certain amount of money, right? And there's two main ways you can be financially free. You can either build up enough money or have your situation in such a way that you're drawing, you're making money passively that covers your cost of living. Or you can be making money doing things that you would do anyway, even if you didn't need it, right? Or you can do a combination of both. Does that help? Yeah, 100%. That was awesome. (laughs) Good clarification. Um, James, I've got a question. Uh, please um, something that's surprised me as I've got in to, uh, try to researching buy to lets is the it seems like industry norm is just interest only payments right mm-hmm. yeah. and, and that is so as a relative newbie to this subject I've gone in thinking you know I borrow I'm going to borrow this big chunk of cash from a bank uh, I'm going to need to pay it down and pay it back. Uh, interest rates are you know, low and have been low for ages. They're going to go up. It's just a matter of when. Um, and therefore, this idea of just, especially now I'm at the, uh, you know, the earlier stage of what Roddy's just been talking about, about like potentially buying a number of properties through a limited company, and the, the idea of taking out multiple mortgages and only just paying the interest on this big bit of debt, to me, in my perception, is that's, <laughs> uh, that seems like a, a, a risky thing. And I know that there's, there's reasons why it's maybe not and there's, there's, there's thought behind this. But could you explain as a as a newbie, my perception of this is, well, why are we only just paying the interest down? Why are we not paying the principal? Can you just explain, you know, yeah, about that and kind of the thoughts on, on that? So everyone has different approaches to get to where they want to get to. A lot of people are big fans in paying down mortgages because they like the safety of it. It tends to, in terms of investors, it tends to be the older investors because they've gone through periods of like very high inflation. They're very concerned by it and they like the psychology of it, right? Like it's paid down, it's done, I own it, like I'm protected. Okay. Also, the other cohort of people tend to be very pro like paying down mortgages are people who don't invest. Because if you don't invest, right, what tends to happen is for people who are fairly like financially sensible, they're in a situation where they're building up savings and they're looking around thinking, well, what do I do with this money? Well, they own their own property, for example. They might have like one buy-to-let property. I'm thinking, well, if I just pay off some of this mortgage, I'm going to feel so much safer. I've got more space in that property. I'm going to, have, I'm going to pay less in mortgage costs. That's good. You know, I'm improving my financial position. It's safer it just feels good to do right psychologically and and i can kind of connect it to a practical sense as well if you're looking like purely crudely like in from an investment point of view most people would say it's not a good thing to do and the reason is because the cost of that debt is probably the cheap one of the cheapest ways you can get debt and the reason because is because property is very safe for a lender to lend against 
when you take a loan or a credit card, for example, it's, it's unsecured. So if you don't pay that money back, they, they have to, like, it's quite difficult for, that, for them to get that money off you. You effectively have to like, go back and call it in. It, they either just don't get it back or it's not worth the, the hassle. Um, they're just assuming that you're going to pay it back because you've built up a good credit rating and you don't want to damage it. With a property, if you don't pay it back, they will force you to sell that property. Now, they don't like to, and they only do it if they really have to. But if they genuinely feel that they've lent far below the value of the property, then if they sell it, they're going to get their money back. They're confident on it. And that's why interest rates are very low. With residential properties at the moment, it's like sub 2%, super low, right? Think about it, huge amounts of money. Where else are you going to get that kind of money at that kind of low interest rate? In the buy-to-let world, you know, it might be like, say, 3%, to 2.5%, 3%. depends how you're borrowing that money, if it's through a company and so on, different ways. But it's still very, very low compared to other means. So if you're in the world of investing and making money from money, then getting cheap debt is a very powerful tool. Because if you're getting debt at 2% interest rate, and then you're able to reliably obtain, say, 7, 10% interest, a return, sorry, then the difference between your cost of debt and the return you're getting from, from that money is what you're pocketing. Okay. Now, if you put yourself in a lot of debt, then what happens is you're, you're, like, you're reducing the range in which you're safe. Okay. So if you take out, say, a 95% mortgage like some people can do at the moment through the government-assisted schemes, then it doesn't have to go down by much, 6 7%, quite conceivable in property, and then you're in negative equity. The reason you're able to do that is because the government is backing you and saying, if that happens, don't worry, uh, we'll cover that in, that in that situation. You can protect against that risk by increasing that range in which you're safe by paying down some of your debt, okay? Or you can do it in another way, which is how I do it. And the way I do it is I always look at, well, how do I maximize return overall? Um, and how do I put that debt to good use? But then I go through those worst case scenarios, the risks and so on. And I think, well, what do I need to put in place so that if things happen, I'm okay? And one way I do that is through diversification. So if one area does badly, I've got other areas. So I can draw on those other areas or sell those other areas to deal with a particular area that's struggling. Okay. Because you never, you never really want to sell when something is down. It's like the worst thing you could possibly do, especially in property. Yeah. If, if you're going through a very difficult market, like in 2008, when the, when the property market crashed, those that got screwed over were those that had to sell during that time. The people that didn't sell during that time were fine. They just went through it and then things went back up. Not every single person, but I would say most, if we're able to weather that storm, you know, never to be picked back up and, and recovered. Okay. So it's about thinking about those risks and then protecting yourself against it. Now, you also want to protect against what I call kind of those black swan events. You know, Nassim Nicholas Tlaib is famous for kind of coining that term. But it's effectively, the black swan, for those that don't know, is you always think, you, you assume that every swan is white, okay? Because every swan, every swan you've seen is white. 
But then 15 years later of seeing 15,000 swans, all of a sudden a black one swan is born. You're like, oh, a black swan is actually possible, but you don't know that until a black swan is born. And it's the same in life or investing. You always want to plan for worst case scenarios, but you also want to plan for things you don't know could happen. And the way to deal with that is to have reserves, have backups. So I always have a, a decent amount of money available so that if something happens, I can draw on that. Okay, if you don't have that, then you've got to play much safer. Okay. The people that get into trouble are those that like can get a little bit obsessed with exactly what's coming in to cover it. So if you're just about to buy a property, you can just about buy a property, you've got no other savings and so on. Uh, then if, if someone doesn't pay your rent one month, that, that can completely financially destroy you. Then you can't buy the mortgage. Then you're getting into uh, a credit default and then you're getting it. Then um, it's more difficult to get loans and credit cards and so on. And, and that can have like a kind of chain reaction. Okay. So, good way to protect against that is go through worst case scenarios think about how do i mitigate those have a general backup approach an amount of money protected okay like a float like an emergency fund so to speak and as you build up and you you're more comp you're more complicated in what you're doing and you're taking bigger risks on you need to build a bigger float okay and you're much better overall doing that and you're going to get a much better return doing that than just removing the risk itself effectively by removing the mortgage but i will summarize by saying some people just will still do that and say you know what it just it's easier for me like it helps me sleep at night if i just have my mortgage below a certain loan to value i just don't worry or as long as i'm just paying down that mortgage okay it's not the best overall return but it's playing to my psychology. And that's really important. Like the whole psychology around money mm. is huge. It's probably the biggest thing. And, and if you can play to your psychology rather than resisting it, you're just going to have a, an easier mm. life, an easier ride. And could you touch just briefly, James, on, because I think there's something around the, let's say, 100K property borrowing 75K, holding on to that 75K of debt, over the 20 year period that that debt becoming actually sort of almost worth less and less so like the longer you by holding debt like it actually diminishes over time can you just because i haven't fully grasped it but i've heard this talked about yeah so debt devalues through inflation in the same way your money devalues and this is what, one of the main reasons why the government loves inflation and always seeks to be in positive inflation, like 2 to 3%. They've taken out all this debt at the moment, okay? The mm. amount of debt that's accumulated, say, in the UK government is huge. There's no way they can pay that off through taxes. Yeah. It's just impossible. They'll do a bit of that, I'm sure, so, yeah, but it will be more optical. In practice, the only way you can pay down that debt is by either inflating it away so as the money devalues over time money is worth less so if you have a hundred thousand pounds worth of debt right now greg right okay well let's fast forward 10 years from now well in 10 years let's say that hundred thousand pounds can buy you the equivalent 
a £50,000 worth of stuff 10 years ago. You follow? In practice, your £100,000 worth of debt is now worth £50,000. So, so if I understand that correctly, you've got... So inflation will uh, actually increase the value, the value of the house you've got, but it will also decrease the value of the debt. So actually by holding the debt over a time period, you kind of have this... Double effect. That, yeah, double effect. Is that right? Yeah, there's kind of like three main benefits to property, right? At least in the UK. One, inflation generally pushes up property prices. Okay, not always, but generally speaking, they push up property prices just because the devaluation of money. Therefore, you need more money to buy a property, okay? Like everything else. So over time, properties will just increase in their purchase price because of leverage. You... Um, you're taking debt against it, right? So the money you've put in relative to the overall price is much higher. So therefore, there's a multiple on the inflation. You following that point? That's the one I talked about earlier, 2% goes to 8%. The second reason is that the debt on that property devalues over time, okay? Because over time, the debt you have against that property is worth less, okay? So like the payments against it, for example, is going to be worth less as well. Yeah. And then thirdly, because of the nature of the property market in the UK, people will, will debate this for hours and people on different counts. My personal view is that property prices go up more than inflation. And that's because generally speaking, for the last God knows how many years, certainly for the last few decades, we have consistently built less properties than we need so they are more in demand over time as we get on and especially that's now, great massively restricted thanks for explaining okay next question so i have one um we've heard, heard uh, the um interest rate on mortgages and, you know, you kind of dropped in, oh, it's a 2% or it's less than 2%. And for my first place, it was that because it, I was buying it myself as an individual, right? Mm. Now, um, you know, what we all have in common is that we have a job <laughs> with an income, whether it be from your own personal, you know, company. Um, there comes a point where there's a ceiling on how much you can actually earn, you know, with being tax efficient and staying in that 20% bracket, right? Which is why I, I decided to start the limited company to start to, to buy this new buy to let. However, that drove the um, mortgage interest up and of course has other knock on effects just accounting, you know, like just stuff that comes with starting a new limited company. So I think my question is for, for people that are like us at the very, very beginning, when, when do you think about stopping being just an individual, supplementing your income from, you know, your normal job? Um, and when do you start thinking about limited, starting as a limited company? And what are the, the pros and cons and the repercussions of it? Uh, this is a big subject, Roddy, and this is, uh, this is a massive change that happened recently. Well, it was about a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. And when the government brought in the changes around 
around this, they brought in a whole suite of changes, like each six months of bringing in more and more changes. And effectively, when they did all of this, they, they in practice, professionalized the property industry. It's annoying because there was all of this stuff that came in and then it's a whole load of stuff you need to understand. The benefit to it is that all of these amateur property investors started to leave the market because you needed to understand all of this stuff to be good in it. Now that's frustrating because if you're an amateur investor, like it's difficult to do. And if you just had one or two or you want one or two, then uh, the bar's higher to be able to do well in it. But on the flip side, it does mean there's all those people now coming out of the market. And if you're willing to do it in a professional way and to put in the time, then you can do well from it. Okay, so that's the first thing I'll say. You referencing this limited company versus personal, buying in your personal name, is a recent phenomenon. Before these changes came in, Nobody bought properties in, their own, in a limited company. It was only like big businesses, you know, for specific reasons that were quite niche. The vast majority of people just bought it in their own name. Okay. So this is a direct consequence of tax changes. Okay. Basically, there's a lot here to kind of talk about. So I, I won't go into it in a huge amount of detail. And I've done a whole load of videos on these areas. So I'd say go check them out and you can kind of understand the detail. You know, I did one on limited company versus buying in your own name, for example. Uh, and there's a lot kind of around the taxing, getting on the right side of tax and so on, because tax is super important. One, because you need to get it right, because if you don't, then it can be a whole load of consequences. But on the other side, it, like it's super worth it in understanding because if you get it, you can, you can actually do really well in this area. You can minimize your tax quite a lot. So one of the best things you can do is earn your money through a company. So although it's really annoying that you've now got to buy properties through a company in certain situations to, to, to still do well, there's a lot of other benefits to it. And the main benefit generally is that you can control when you receive income from a company. Okay. Why the middle class tend to get squeezed in this country is because as you earn more and more money, you pay more tax, 40% tax, 45% tax, okay? It's pretty high, right? So a huge amount of what you're paying, uh, earning is taken away in tax. If you earn through a company, any, any expenses related to that company to, to make that money is tax deductible. And then you can choose when you take the money from that company into your own name. So generally speaking, if you can minimize the amount of money that you make beyond your basic rate tax threshold, okay, are you going from 20% tax to 40%? Now, you're going to have to fact check this in Scotland because I'm obviously England is my world and tax is broadly similar in Scotland, but there are definite changes. So I would just double check that and also check with the tax account. Uh, but, but when you can, when you earn money through a company, you can say, Oh, do I want the money this year or next year, for example? Okay. And if you've already made 50,000 pounds, for example, then you can say, well, I'll wait till next year and draw those funds when I've earned less money and keep it within a lower rate of tax. Okay. So that's the general stuff that I'm going to lead in with. Okay. Now, why are you talking about buying a limited company? Because a few years ago, effectively, 
the UK government dropped this massive bombshell and they said, I won't go through it in the very specifics, but in effect, if you are a higher rate or additional rate taxpayer, you will not get the full deduction for your mortgage. Okay. So your interest on your mortgage, you will only be able to deduct effectively 20% of your tax. So if you're a higher rate taxpayer, say that's 40%, half only kind of, you're only getting the benefit from half of the mortgage. So if you're paying, I don't know, £5,000 a year in mortgage costs, £2,500 of that will not be tax deductible. So you can be in situations where you are, t- you are cash flow positive, but then when taking tax into account, you're actually cash flow negative. So you're still paying tax, even though you're not making money overall. Okay. But if you buy through a company, because it's the company making the money, not you personally, you don't apply to those rules. Okay. So you can deduct the full mortgage cost. The second thing, and which is quite related to it, is that your mortgage interest doesn't get taken off your taxable income. Okay. So for example, say you were at £45,000 income and your mortgage interest was say £10,000 okay, a year. In effect, when this change came into place, that effectively pushed your taxable income up by £10,000. So it pushes you into the higher rate tax threshold. Okay. Again, if you own it through a company, that doesn't apply. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, okay, even with those changes, it doesn't affect you. So that's fine if you're, if you're within that range, very comfortably within that range. You can just still owning properties and, and there's some other details, but effectively the biggest impacts you aren't affected by. But a couple of things. One, what happens in the future when you start to earn more and more money? That property is still in your own name. Okay, so it's fine now, but let's say in 10 years time and you're earning, say, £80,000, all of a sudden these tax changes come into effect and you can't then just move it into a company. I mean, you can technically, but to move it into a company, you're effectively selling it to your company. And when you do that, you're paying all of the sale costs, so legal fees, broker fees, mortgage fees, capital gains fees, essentially whole load of costs surrounding that. Okay. And so you can do it, but it can be very costly. And for a lot of people, they often don't do it. Okay. So generally speaking, for people who are doing this properly, okay, and earning more money than £50,000 a year or planning to in the future, for most people in this game, they tend to buy through a limited company. And there's a whole number of other benefits, which I kind of highlighted earlier. If you earn less than £50,000, then you can buy in your own name, but there's that risk in the future. Okay? So, for example, I actually own uh, properties in my own name. The reason why I'm able to do that is because all my money is made through companies. I have business ventures. I don't earn an income. And so by doing that, I'm able to adjust my income such that I'm a basic rate taxpayer. By doing that, I'm not hurt by those properties. But if I bought more properties, 
by doing that, I would be increasingly impacting myself by doing that. You follow? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but it does mean that there is then a ceiling on how many properties you can buy as an individual. So, so you know, you, at some point, you're, you're destined to either suck up the 40% or start buying properties through one of your or starting a new limited company to do so. Correct. But yeah, no, that's okay. Cool. That's re reassuring. <laughs> I'll most likely be watching that answer back. <laughs> but yeah, good. Yeah. All I'll say on that area is it is super complicated. And, you know, each six, I mean, it's calmed down more recently. There was a period of two or three years when every six months there's a whole load of tax forms are coming in. And if they're still doing it, and it does make this area more complicated. And, and a lot of people ask me, oh, you know, James, should I go into property? You know, is it a good idea? I say it depends. You know, if you're wanting to buy multiple properties and really properly do it, it's worth it because there's economies of scale there. You're going to have to learn all those rules, but it's going to apply to all of those properties. If you're just buying one or two and that's it. It probably doesn't make sense because you've got to follow all this stuff and understand it and take out a company and have an accountant and understand all the tax rules and mess about with dividends and all of this stuff, right? Like, and if you super enjoy it and love it, then great. Okay, guys. So uh, I think we're coming to the time. So I don't want to take up, uh, draw this out and too much longer. So we've got time for one more question and then we'll do a bit of a wrap up. How's that sound? Good. Yeah. Sounds good. Brilliant. I've got one. I've got one on HMOs. Um, so first of all, uh, just like a bit of a rundown of what exactly an HMO is. You said earlier on it's about treating each room as an individual uh, kind of block within your flat. Um, and you know, during my research of HMOs, it's really tricky to find all the information in one place. And I'm wondering, you know, like you'll watch a video and then you'll hear a something else that's completely contradicting it. And then you're even on the .gov website is a wee bit like, I don't know, it's a bit sketchy. How do you find out about the ins and outs of current up-to-date law? It's a good question because it is constantly changing. So, so firstly, what, a few questions there. So firstly, what is an HMO? An HMO is a house of multiple occupants, right? So there's different definitions depending on where you look and where you are and so on. The national one, and I'm, I'm talking England here, so you're going to have to check in Scotland. But in England, its default is, and don't quote me specifically on this, but it's effectively five different households or five different rooms being rented out kind of separately of three floors or more. But in specific locations, there is a different definition for it. Okay, so a common one is three households or more and no floor limit, but it can vary depending on location to location. It's the local council that usually sets it. With HMOs, there's specific additional rules and regulations that you need to follow. So for example, fire doors, specific kind of smoke alarms, certain things that need to be had in the kitchen and so on whole load of rules and regulations because you've got different people living in that space you need to make sure that it's safe given that it's that setup if you've got one family living in there then you're not going to need to have the same level of 
protection and rules and regulations and things there because of the way those people are going to be living in that house, right? Okay. The reason why other areas change that is because usually because there's something going on in that particular area where they feel they need to have more rules. So often it happens in areas where there's a lot of HMOs already. And so they're looking to kind of provide more protection to those living in those areas, either because they want to restrict how many people are staying there or living in those areas. They might restrict how many HMO licenses they give out or because they say, well, look, there's so many people living in this kind of situation. We want to provide more protection. We're going to say, look, you, you need to follow all these specific rules for if there's three or more, because uh, we want to make sure that uh, those staying in those types of conditions are, you know, are still safe and protected. Okay. So if you want to find out specific information about what you need to be following, your best protocol is your local council for that area. So they should have a website and explain what is an HMO for them and what are the rules and regulations around that. And there's different licenses. So there's like your HMO license generally, but then you've got kind of additional licenses, selective licensing schemes, different places call them different things. But check out the local council website if in doubt, but probably best either way to just call them, call that specific um, department and say, look, this is what I'm doing. You know, what rules and regulations do I need to follow? I'm thinking about doing this. What should I do? Okay. That's probably your best place for reliable information and what is relevant to you and your particular property. An area to go for just general information and, and advice and to talk about these things. Property Tribes is really good. It's a forum-based website online. Very, very popular. And there's a lot of active users on there that... You know, it's a good community and people make the time to answer questions and welcome people in there and so on. A lot of people love it and um, rely on it quite heavily. Does that help? Any any other bits that I missed a part of that? I know there was multiple questions. Yeah, no, that definitely helps. Property tribes. Um, the mention of fire doors, uh, I assume it's a case-by-case basis whether you decide to go HMO or not because every fire door and door closer is just more money. And, and applying for an HMO probably costs money, right? So I, I assume it's a case-by-case case running the figures if it's even worthwhile applying for an HMO in the first place. Exactly. So if, if I'm thinking about doing an HMO in a particular area, I'm going to find out what are the specific rules in that particular location, okay? Mm. So for the property I'm buying, how many rooms are there? What would I, pl- how many rooms would I look to rent out and so on? And, and in what circumstance? Okay. If I do it like that, what licenses do I need to apply for to be able to do that? How much is it to apply for those licenses? Is it guaranteed? Some have quotas, for example. So it's not rely- relied upon. People buy properties in certain areas thinking they're going to get an HMO license. And the council just reject it and say, no, we have too many here. Sorry. And then the whole investment uh, proposition fails at the, at the first hurdle. So you then think, okay, well, there's going to be costs to apply for the license, to maintain the license. The license will only last so many years. There'll be a whole load of costs to make it HMO compliant. It will take time to do it. So you've got to think about what the costs in that first year are in terms of getting the right people in. So student lets, for example, are only going to work certain times a year. And then you're thinking, okay, well, 
once I do it, what, what's my expected return? Or how many rooms? What's the kind of rent I'm going to expecting? All of that good stuff. So taking a property and making it an HMO from the beginning takes a lot of work and, you, and you've got to go through all of the things to make sure it works in terms of where you can do it and the financials make sense. Often people buy properties that are already got an HMO license and already being operated in that respect. Much easier to do because the license is in play or you know it can get a license. Uh, the, the property is already set up following the rules and regulations already and so on. So it's just about continuing that process going forward. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Brilliant. Well, guys, look, thanks so much for some very probing and difficult questions at times. Hopefully, those <laughs> that have watched, uh, this has been helpful. As you can see, all uh, three of the guys on this call are in different stages of their journey, looking at different types of approaches for investing in property. And hopefully these questions have answered some of your concerns and giving you inspiration for your own journey into property. That's all for me, guys. Any last points before we finish off? No. All, right. all good. Thank you, James. Yeah, just to say yeah. thanks, mate. That was really helpful. Thank you. Well, guys, well, that's it for this week. Stay tuned for following weeks for future content. Speak soon.